We're reading 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to 23. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he is lives in him and he is in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Well good morning everybody. It's great to be here. We're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 1 John chapter 3 uh, verses 11 to 24 and if you have a bible or electronic device or something like that you may want to call that up uh, as we're going to be working that through now one of the things we've been doing in the letter of 1 John is we've been discovering what happens in a life when a person recognizes that Jesus was God in the flesh who came into this world and who took the sins of all those who would trust in him upon the cross where he died. And when that happens, that brings about a a radical change in a life. And John, in 1 John, he's explaining that. What does that mean? What what does it happen? Maybe you're here this morning and you're just looking on these in on these strange people who call them Christians like me. And you're just asking yourself, what is it that makes them so different? You know, I'm, I'm around Christians. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're uh, somebody who's uh, there beside you where you're living. And you, you ask yourself, you know, I just don't get it. What makes them so different? Well, John tells us, and if you look there in 1 John back in chapter 1, he makes this incredible statement about what happens when a person puts their trust in Christ. He says there in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, he tells us that we have fellowship with God. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) 
You know, just get your head around that. What, what does that mean? And John wants to show us in 1 John that part of what that means is a radical reorientation in everything about our lives. That's one of the things it brings about. He says there a bit later on uh, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says that God is light. Now, let that just sink in a moment. Suddenly, here I am, I'm walking along in my life. I'm living my life as best I think I want to, according to my mates, according to what's going on around me. And then all of a sudden, this blazing light of reality comes into my life. God is light. And that changes everything. It, It changes how I look at every aspect of my life. And I think that's what John means a bit later on when he talks about, I think in, in verse 6 of chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 1, about walking in the light. What does it mean when, when I've come to see the, the light that's in God? How, how does that work out in my life? And John's just going through this book and he's saying, well, it means that at least three things will be evident. If that's true... You're first of all going to begin to just have a love for the truth that's found in Jesus in the Bible. You're just going to love it. Because suddenly your whole thinking shifts because you think, wait a minute, there is a God and and suddenly I see things differently. My thinking shifts. And I'm also going to have a love for wanting to live a life that's pleasing to Jesus. You know, it's just like in a family when you have a child... And the children are growing up that, that ultimately they always want to be like their dad and their mom. <laughs> they, they want to be like them. And they take on the loves of their dad and their mom. And they take on the loves of the family. Because that's where family is. And they want to be like them. And so my behavior changes. And then the other radical reorientation is that they love those who are part of God's new family. They say, wait a minute. I I now have new relationships. These are the ones who God has brought me alongside who have this same love for Jesus. And not only that, but they're the ones who going into eternity will be with me. So, So John wants to say, look, when a person puts their trust in Christ, everything changes. There's a radical reorientation. And we're going to be looking at particularly what does that mean in our relationship with one another in chapter 3, verses 11 down to 24, and also our assurance in our hearts. So if you have your Bible open there, and I want to just look at two things this morning. What does it mean to walk in love? And what does it mean to walk in assurance as we try to figure out that reorientation? Now, John starts chapter 3, verse 11. He says it, For this is the message you have heard, that from the beginning you should love one another. Now, one of the things when you're going through this letter, and, and also you find actually in the Gospel of John, John loves sharp distinctions. <laughs> John has no room for middle ground. Either you're in life or you're in death. Either you're in the light or you're in darkness. Either you're in truth or you're in error. John doesn't like any gray areas. He he just rejects there being gray realities. Now, that may actually be a problem for you. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, look, this is exactly why I find Christians so difficult. 
You know, they, 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 they always say, you know, this is right and wrong. And come on, aren't there a huge amount of gray areas in life? And, and how can you be so definitive in saying it's right and wrong? Well, it goes back to where he said earlier that, that God is light. And, and think of it like this. You wake up in the middle of the night. You need a drink of water. So you get out of bed. You stumble through the room in the dark. And then you go down the stairs. You know, you're holding on to the banisters. You get down the stairs. You get down to the bottom. And you can sort of see things. You know, a bit of light coming in from the street lights and other things. And maybe the moon through the windows. You see a little bit, but it's all hazy. And then you turn on the light and suddenly everything's sharp. You see the lines. You see the realities. And one of the things John is wanting to say in this letter is... That when you come to put your trust in God and God is light, suddenly the lights come on. And you realize there are sharp distinctions. Uh, Just take a little bit example of what we've already seen. Take for the issue uh, the word, the whole reality of truth. You suddenly see that there is a true truth that trumps everything else. Now, you may say, wait a minute, Michael, that's a bit arrogant. Well, no, it's not. Actually, it's what we all do anyway, isn't it? Because all of us, when we have to make a decision about whether we think something is right or wrong, we all go to some place in our lives where we think that's the true truth that trumps everything else. It it may be our family. It may be our education. Maybe it's uh, our mates. Maybe it's what we read in the world. What is everybody else thinking? But all of us go somewhere for a true truth that trumps everything else. For the person who's come to Christ, the child of God, what they come to is they suddenly recognize this. There's a God and glory in heaven. And ultimately, what everybody else says, even if everybody else says it's wrong, I know it's right. Because... He's the ultimate truth that trumps every other truth. So so that's one of the areas where you know suddenly you're in the light. Secondly, about behavior. Well, you sit there and you ask yourself, well, how should I live? How should I live in this area? You know, what's the way I should behave in my relationship with other people or at the workplace? And again, you can go either one of two places. You go either according to your mates or ultimately what you feel is right inside. Or... And somebody who's coming to light, actually what you do is you step back and say, no, wait a minute, what I feel inside really isn't the point. Whether I feel this way or not, that's not what I need to do. What I need to do is I need to live in a way that's pleasing to the one who saved me, to Jesus. And so my behavior is going to align itself with him. And that's really what we saw the other week when we were uh, looking in chapter 2, verse 29, that we realized that, look, if you're one of God's children... You're going to want to live in a way that pleases him. And then finally, in my relationships. And that's what our passage is all about this morning. And John here says, love one another. Now, I think one of the realities is, if you come to know Jesus, and you begin to get your head around what God has done in his love, and sending Jesus into the world to die upon the cross, you're going to love everybody. That's just a reality. But we do need to at least recognize that when John is talking here about love one another, he has a prescribed group he's talking about. And that comes out in what he says in verse 13 and later on verse 16. It's his little phrase, brothers and sisters. So, so he's saying, look, you know, 
we're going to love particularly this new family God has set me in. And, and there's going to be this new affection, this new sort of solidarity that I have with other Christians. Now, that's really strange, isn't it? I, I mean, let's be honest. Most people in life, they create their groups and friendship groups around affinities. They, they, you know, this is what we all like. Uh, maybe you, you really like the color pink, and so you get up with people who like the color pink. Or, or maybe, you know, you really like art, and you get up with people who like art. Or, you know, people that, that like one particular thing. But normally, you don't get together with people who don't agree with you. In your lifestyle, affections, socioeconomic situation. And normally you don't. But notice that God's family is exactly the opposite of all the others. God, when he creates a family, he throws us together people who normally would be at each other's throats. You know, we're just all different. We're strange. We dress differently. We eat differently. We come from different backgrounds. We may even like different music that gets on top of, you know, gets under the skin of other people. God throws us all together in this incredible diversity. And yet, there's this overriding unity that we all love Jesus. And that's who John's talking about here. He's talking about this new family that a person comes into. When they put their trust in Christ. And look, you may think that sounds a little bit exclusive. But the reality is we all draw circles of community. We all do it. And what John is saying is that when I come into Christ and I I see the light of reality of God. I draw a bigger, different circle. It's around those who I know are part of my new family. So that's the first thing that John wants to say. He's going to give us distinctions. But when he talks about that, he says one of the things we're going to want to do is we're going to want to love one another. And when it comes to loving one another, he shows us here in these early verses that the battle of love is in our heart. That's where the battle is. And notice what he says there in verse 12. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's really hard words. Let let, let me just unpack that a little bit. Because that, that sort of condensed truth there. And we think, whoa, what's going on here? John goes back to the big shock at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, it's in Genesis chapter 4. It's only four, only four chapters into the Bible. Chapters 1 and 2, you, you have this wonderful world that God created, this utopia. Something we all, in the echo of our hearts, long for. We long for a world like that. Then in, in chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve. They, they rebel against God. They sin against God. And uh, within that, the, the, the Bible wants to teach us that that has a radical effect upon the heart of every man, woman, and child ever born. A radical effect upon them. That they, they shift from, from wanting to recognize that there's a higher power outside of them, God, creator, whom they need to respond to, that shifts from that to actually saying, look, I'm in charge. What I think is wise is wise. What I think is right is right. What I think I should prioritize on, I prioritize on. I shift to self. Now, you may say, okay, that's not that big a deal, is it? Well, it is when you get to chapter 4, because in chapter 4, you have a brother killing his brother. Four chapters into the Bible. 
You think, how in the world do you go from that great place in the garden to murder in just a few words? And the answer is that Cain and his brother Abel, they they were bringing a sacrifice to God. And in their sacrifice, they actually revealed what was going on in their hearts. That's really what the whole point was. Uh, Abel brought a sacrifice of a lamb and he wanted to sacrifice it because he recognized that actually he needed God's help. He needed God's grace. And therefore, he was really saying, look, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Cain, very different character. You know, he's self-oriented. So he thinks, you know what, I've grown this stuff and I want to really impress God. I want to show God what I'm on about and who I am. So he brings his own fruit and God rejects Cain's sacrifice and accepts Abel. Now notice what it says there, that when God did that, into Cain's heart, and this sounds a bit harsh, but I think we'll understand it. In Cain's heart, it says Cain's heart, into it came the evil one, the devil. So Cain's anger and hatred invited the devil in. And as he watered, nurtured, cared for, and brought to fruition that hatred in his heart, he murdered his brother. Why? Because his brother had done something for him? No. Notice at the, verse, at the end of verse 12, because his brother's righteous act exposed his own heart. So he hated his brother because his brother's actions showed what was going on in his own heart. And and Cain said, no, I'm not going to have that. I'm going to deal with this. Now, you you may be saying at that point, Michael, look, that's just, whoa, way over the top. Is it that, that John here is just going a little bit beyond reality? Actually, no. John learned this at the feet of Jesus. Do you remember the words in... Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. There on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was talking about his kingdom, he said this. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to their brother or sister, Raka, which is a slang word really in, in Hebrew, which was something like this, you are a waste of space. Stop taking up air. It's answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Do you see what Jesus is saying? And John's taking on from that. Jesus is saying that hate is the root of all murders. That when hate is watered and allowed to live in our lives, and we nurture it, and we grow it, and we allow it to come to fruition, it produces all kinds of things. One of them may be murder. Let me give you an example. We had earlier led to us in prayer the situation in Ukraine. One of the ways you could read that would just say that at heart it's the working out of what we see here. That President Putin wants to restore the former glory of Russia that he feels has been taken away from him through historical situations. And within that, of course, what he wants is to be seen 
to be the one who restored greater Russia. So therefore the glory would come to him. So in his own heart, his own self-ambition is, this is the ultimate thing that must happen. We must restore Russia. And therefore he hates everyone who opposes that. And is willing to kill every Ukrainian that opposes what in his heart he feels is the greatest glory. That's exactly what happened with Cain. And and John's saying here, what he's wanting us to do, is he's wanting us to recognize that we must never allow bitterness and hatred to run in our lives because bitterness and hatred are the toxic rivers of hell that if we allow them to live in our heart, will ruin our lives. In the subject. Have nothing to do with hatred. A bit of an aside. Can I just give a bit of a sidebar on this as well? I think it's interesting. Um, when in verse 13, John goes on to say in chapter 3 of 1 John, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now, now what does he mean by that? Well, he's saying something like this, I think. That, look, it, when we live in this world, we live in a world that hates light. Okay? You know, we, we live in a world that wants shadows, that wants blackout spaces, that wants gray. That's where the world we live in. They, they don't want a world where there's light. So, therefore, he's saying that for God's children, when they they just simply live according to what God has said, a life that's pleasing to Jesus, it's not that they do anything to provoke anybody, but the very fact that they live righteous exposes the sin of others around us. And when it exposes the sin around us, the world is not happy. The world hates us. And I think that's helpful if we understand something of the friction. It isn't that we've always done something wrong. But it's really that we're exposing that there is something wrong. When we live it the way Jesus wants to. Okay, well if that's true, then we have to ask ourselves, well how in the world do I learn love? And, and that's really what we look at verses 16 to 18. And we read there, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if anyone has, uh, or if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love, with wor- not with words and speech, but with actions and truth. Now I want you to just notice generally two things John's saying there. First of all, how do we learn love? We look at Jesus. You know, for, for the Christian, love has a definition. It's, it's not a word you just sort of use however you want to. But, but within those who've come to put their love and uh, their trust in Christ, love has a particular definition, and that is look at the life of Jesus. That Jesus left heaven and came down in poverty and pain and suffering and went to the cross of Calvary in order that he might take away our sins. And I think that's interesting because John's just wanting to remind us, first of all, that when we talk about love as, as Christians, we have a definition to it, being like Jesus. And we also recognize that love is always active. That's really what he's saying there at the end of that in verse 18. He's saying love is not an emotion. There is emotion. 
But that's not love, at least not biblically. Biblically, love is looking at Jesus and seeing it motivates him to action for others. That's always love. It's always active. So if we ask ourselves, okay, wait a minute. If it's learning how to be like Jesus, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean for you and I today? Well, can I just suggest a a few things in taking it from uh, uh, some of the passages we find uh, in um, other places in the Bible? As for instance, if we go to like to Philippians uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. Not looking to our your own interests, but each of us to the interests of the others. That's very simple. He, he's saying something like this. That when I come into church this morning in Highfield, I leave my interest outside the doors. I'm not here at church primarily for what I can get. I do come to worship God, but, but when I walk through those doors, I'm not here primarily for what I can get. I come in here primarily for the interest of my brothers and sisters sitting next to me in church today. That's the first thing. If I want to be like Jesus, I don't live for myself. I'm not focused on myself. I'm, I'm coming and I'm focusing on you. And I'm saying, what is it that I, what can I do specifically today to help you in your interest? Or uh, in... Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's an incredible challenge, isn't it? You know, to to humble myself. For my brother and sister sitting around me today. And, And maybe they're going on about something I find really, really boring. And, you know, difficult to listen to. What do I do? Do I walk away? No. I humble myself and bear with them. And that's probably a pretty good action because sometimes they're going to find what I say really deadly boring as well. But that's what it means to love one another. Or or Galatians uh, uh, chapter 6. And uh, particularly in verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. I come in here and I'm sitting down there and I'm telling myself as I come through the doors this morning, wait a minute, I want to just find out what somebody's burden is in this coming week. Maybe just to say to them, look, I want to pray for you. You're talking about everything else, holiday, everything else, wonderful. But at the end of that you say, look, what are you facing this week because I want to pray for that through the week. I want to bear your burden. You're not in this alone. I'm here to bear your burden. What can I do? Or Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, when it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, I, th- I think what John's saying is this, that that, no, not John, I would have said Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, if you want to doubt the authorship of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is saying something like this. I come to church so that my brothers and sisters can see me worshiping God. I want to encourage them. I come to bow before God's word because I, I want to encourage them to listen to God's word. I, I want to be there because I know They've got tough struggles, and I want them to know I'm beside them. They're not alone. So I'm going to be at church. I'm going to be there at the service because I want to spur them on to good works, and I want to love them. And, and all of that's part of what it means to love 
like Jesus loves. Let me just take that out a couple of ways, a little side, couple of quick sidebars. You, you may be here and you may be asking, look, what is, what is the wonder of being a Christian? Well, aren't these things I'm mentioning exactly what you long for in life? You don't know Christ and you long for this in your family and your friendships and it's just always friction and battle. And you think, wow, I'd love to be someplace where people are concerned about my interests. That's the better story the Bible invites us into. It's not a dream, but it's a better story that for those who come to Christ, they're already entering into in a little way. But ultimately, they know it will be fulfilled in the age to come. But it's the better story of God is a community like that. One other sidebar, I think, that it's worth just recognizing. I don't know if you ever hear, but I hear it sometimes. People sometimes say to me, look, I don't think church is doing enough for me. I, I, I really don't think it's doing enough for me. And I'm thinking about whether I need to go to another church. Now, I, I have to say that myself and uh, the elders and the staff, I mean, that I, we really understand that. And we desperately try to, in order to respond to that. But there are a couple of things we need to recognize when we say those words. Number one, you are church. Not the staff and elders. We are church. The, the, the word church means the, the community called out of the world by loving Jesus that is brought together. That's what church is. So when we talk about church is not doing enough for me, what we're really saying is, I'm not doing enough. Because ultimately I'm church, along with everybody else. And, and secondly, I think we also have to say, look, John places the responsibilities to love each other like this on all of us. Not the guys up front, not the guys who have a role, it's it, on all of us. And so one of the things we, I think we really have to do when we read a passage like this, is we have to, have to ask ourselves, am I doing this? Am I leaving my interests at the front door? Am, am I coming in and, and when I sit down and after the service or coffee or whatever, am I actively going around and saying, look, my calling today is to love my brothers and sisters. Are we doing that? I think that's one of the things this passage would teach us. Then finally, also, John goes on and he, he ends his passage in verses 19 to 24 with, with really talking about what does it mean to walk in assurance. Now, some of us, we, we just have that assurance. Uh, I, Davina and I celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary this week. Wonderful occasion. But it reminded me that many years ago, I stopped waking her up in the morning and asking, are we married? I mean, I don't have to ask her that. Because I know that I know that I know we're married. John wants to talk about when you know that you know that you know you're God's child. And look how beautifully he puts it there in verse 19. He, he puts it this way. How we set our hearts at rest. Isn't that interesting? At rest and contentment. It's like, it's like you know, it's just going down into a deep cushioned chair and oh, just resting in God, knowing that we're his. And, and John wants to sort of encourage us here in these verses. And I think he wants to encourage those of us who are timid and prone to doubt. Some of us are. You know, we, we always want to see the bad side. 
Yeah, I'm doing, is it really true? I think John wants to help us there. And he gives us two little helps. First of all, in verse 19, when he opens up the verse, he said, this is how we know. And that word know means more than head knowledge. It means when the head knowledge sinks down to, to 18 inches to my heart to experience knowledge. This is how we know. And he's looking back to what he's already said. And I think what he's referring to is this. That, that we can find some hope in seeing the shoots of life in our own lives. Do I love the truth that about Jesus is the son of God and his triumph on the cross? Do I love that in my heart? Am I convinced that he was God in the flesh who came to save me? Is that, is that what I'm convinced about? Do I long to live a life that's more pleasing to him? I may not do a very good job. I may trip all over the place, but I long to. And do I really feel deeply when I fail him? And it really causes me to be broken? Do I love God's people? Do I want to be with God's people? Do, do I feel this strange affinity with them? Even if I go someplace where we don't even talk the same language, but I feel I'm one family with them. Do, do I have that love in my heart? And I think what John wants to say to us, if you have those things, take heart. They're, they're part of what it means to be walking in the light. You're walking in the light. They're not infallible, but they're encouragement. But he adds to that verse 20, and I think verse 20 is lovely. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And, and I think I would put it this way. What he's saying there is, look, remember that God's covenant love is greater than your mistakes. God's love for you when he brought you to himself and died upon the cross, he did it despite your best mistakes. And his grace is greater than your failures. Take heart. John ends that, though, in verses 23 and 24, with what we have to call the irreducible reality of how you know you're in the family. Now, look, there are open-hand truths we can disagree on things, and I recognize that. You can disagree completely with me and tell me what an idiot I am. I, I appreciate that. But there are closed fist truths. That if they're not true, then you are not a child of God. And if that's where you're at this morning, come talk to me. I'd love to help you. And John brings, I think, the irreducible minimum down in verses 23 and 24. And this is a command to believe. Notice the word command, not a suggestion. This is the command of God. This is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how you know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gave us. And the irreducible reality really comes down to this. That I recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Messiah who came to die upon the cross for my sins and who is now reigning. That I have a love for God's people that when push comes to shove always goes to them because I know they're part of my heavenly family. And that I am striving however ineptly, however many times I slip to try to grow in a life that pleases him. And John says, if those are true of you, then they are marks 
You are his children living in the light. Let us pray. Most gracious and merciful Lord, I want to thank you for your servant John and what he brings to us and the truth that he opens up our hearts to. And we simply want to live in the light. We want to learn to love one another far more deeply than we do. Help us to work that out. Help us to just encourage one another with an arm around their shoulders and just say, you're doing all right. And help us as we seek to live for you in this life. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.